Welcome to the world of thoroughbred racing on the Equisport Radio Network. Dar's got a lead. Alidar put ahead in front, right in the middle of the stretch. It's Alidar and Affirm battling back along the inside. We'll test these two to the wire. Affirmed under a left-hand whip. Alidar on the outside driving. Affirmed and Alidar heads apart. Affirm's got a nose in front as he come on to the wire. Join our host, Les Salzman, and his team as they go behind the scene to cover the inside stories and history of the international racing scene. And down the stretch they come on the outside at Sunday Silence. Easy goer with Pat Day. Back to challenge. Heads apart. Easy goer on the inside with a slight lead. On the outside, Sunday Silence. The rest of them far back. Here's the finish of the Preakness. Sunday Silence and Easy Goer. Photo finish. Noses apart. Get ready for some great interviews and fast paced action. She's starting to pick them off, those in Yata going to hook to the outside. Meanwhile, it's Colonel John Summerbird in the red cap. And Zinyata's come to the outside. Zinyata coming flying on the grandstand side. Gio Conti on the inside. Summerbird is right there. This is unbelievable. Zinyata, what a performance. One will never And now, your host. Les Salzman. Hey, welcome to the show. Joining me in the studio this afternoon is the always entertaining and informative Alora Allen. How are you, Alora? I'm just fine, thank you. Well, you know, Alora, we originally had Jackie Joe Bravo uh, scheduled to be on the show with us at the first part, uh, but Joe got a call for the third race at Gulfstream Park. So as we're talking, he's walking out of the jocks room to get on his mouth. But you and I discussed something a few weeks ago about female announcers. And we, we were talking about some of the modern women that are out there, and uh, they do a great job. But there's somebody that a lot of people forget. Chelsea Canter. Chelsea Canty, exactly. And Chelsea was one of the pioneers. And I got to tell you, she's not, not only a great female announcer, she's a great announcer and probably, in my opinion, one of the great – Great race analyst of all time. And in, in sports, she was the only, practically the only woman on TV. And even in the news, maybe Barbara Walters. <laughs> no, she she was really a pioneer. And it's funny. I think you remember uh, watching her on, on What's My Line or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, the old, we, we caught her on an old What's My Line. Uh, and she was being. See how boring in, we are. But, exactly. But she was being. A contestant on the show, she had ridden a horse for Frank Whiteley at the time called Arlene Francis in the morning, and Arlene Francis was one of the panelists. <laughs> and it was, it was kind of cute for those of us of that generation. It was riveting, let me tell you. <laughs> right? Of course, you're talking about people that stay awake till 8.30. Uh, so we've got Charlsey coming on, uh, the interview with Charlsey coming on that we did about a year ago. And I think it's really revealing and very interesting. And then after that, an interview that I've wanted to do for several years with two of the most family-oriented people in the industry, Carl Becker and Kurt Becker. Carl, of course, one of the great announcers on the Standard Bread side and, and the auction ring. Kurt, the only announcer ever at Keeneland and a great announcer at the auctions as well. 
Father and son. Father and son, and very, very different, but both with great sense of humors and a great sense of family. So I'm really looking forward to getting the two of them on with us. And next week, in our next episode, we'll have Joe Bravo with us and a couple of other really good guests. So uh, while we're queuing up the interview with Charles C. Canty, let's take a little break. At 30 to 1 with Angel Cordero Jr. completes the field. 13 years ago, the coaching club was a very special renewal because it was won by Ruffian, and it was the last victory of her career. Charles, what's your first recollection of that great filly? It was in the spring of 1974, Dave. I was working for Frank Whiteley, and Ruffian was one of several very promising three-year-old, two-year-old fillies he had in the barn. We knew she was good, but nobody was really prepared for what she did the first time she ran right here at Belmont Park. She equaled the track record as a two-year-old. She won by 15, and she wasn't even the favorite, but that was never to happen. And again, she made a career out of setting or equaling track and stakes records, and she was a legend. She won five races at two, five races at three. I was fortunate enough to call nine of her ten races, and they just seem like yesterday, as this does. Stuart Janney Jr. leading her into the winner's circle, the owner there following the coaching club American Oaks, the race that made her the undisputed champion in the record books and in the hearts of racing fans everywhere. It was her toughest victory because she only won by two and three-quarter lengths. Usually Usually, Dave, we saw her winning like this, just drawing off and hiding from the field. Frank Whiteley and Jacinta Vasquez both felt we had yet to see the best of her, that she hadn't really learned to run. But she didn't just beat her competition, she often devastated them. A filly would move the ruffian with everything they had, and she'd just glide away and leave them brokenhearted. No horse ever finished in front of her. Her only loss was dealt to her by her own body. They will never fill her hoof prints in the stretch at Belmont Park. And every time the coaching club American Oaks is run, we will always think of Ruffian. And this is Les Salzman with Scott Miller on the Equisport News radio show. And... The reason we played that very, very special clip is we have a very, very special guest with us this morning, Charles C. Canty. Charles C., welcome to the show. Thank you, Les. Thank you so much. Wow, what a trip back in time that was. That That is something I never, ever will be over, and I can still tear right up. So we have to move along here because it still breaks my heart. Oh, I'm sorry, Charles C. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about m- m- more more pleasant things. I think I've spent more Saturday afternoons with you and Frank Wright and, of course, Dave Johnson <laughs> than I spent with any members of my family. Uh, you you guys were the pioneers of horse racing broadcasting, and I remember so many of those Saturday afternoons. And Angel Cordero, who was a regular guest, saying, boy, she was a very good filly. Very, uh, those, very good. <laughs> right? Uh, no, I, I was uh, I was exaggerating a bit. I, I still get choked up. I don't think I'll ever f- forget what, what happened and what we went through with Ruffian. And, and, of course, that was just before I started doing television. So thank Lord in heaven I didn't have to cover that race. But, of course, Frank Wright did and Dave Johnson and everyone had to be professional and handle that. But for those of us working in the barn and around her, it was it was a devastating night. I mean, you know, we, we waited and waited for the surgery, and then you know the next morning, first thing early, we knew she she 
didn't make it, and then we all had to go to the barn and get on our horses. And, and Frank just, he cut us no slack, Frank Whiteley. He said, come on, we've got a set to get out. we got to go. And we all got on our horses, and we went up to the main track. And as we're backing up, going the wrong way up to the eighth pole in front of the grandstand, in the infield was the equipment digging her, her grave where she, she is till now. And uh, believe me, hearing that piece just brought it all back so much. But what an amazing filly she was and how fortunate we all were to have gotten to see her and watch her in her magnificent way. Now, Chelsea, you, you mentioned that you were still galloping horses and then you got into broadcasting. How'd that all happen? <laughs> well, I was working for Frank Whiteley. This is a story I've, I've told a good many times, but I think back on it, and I think I just never did understand how this happened. But it was very simple. I was at the barn galloping horses for Frank Whiteley right there at Belmont, ruffians in the barn, and all the media connections, um, the publicity people from NIRA, from New York Racing Association, would come over to the barn to get an update on when is she going to have her next workout? When is she going to run again? She was, you know, a huge rock star at the time. And a, a fellow who worked for Naira named Frank Tours, he, he would come to the barn every morning, and he kept saying, you know, they want to put a woman on this TV show that Frank Wright and Dave Johnson were doing together for the Racing from Belmont Aqueduct Saratoga show that you knew so well. And they... He kept saying, you should really go try out. They want to get someone on the show who knows horse racing, and you sure fit the bill. You ought to go over there. You would be good. And I kept laughing. I'd say, are you crazy? Be on TV, not me. No thanks. I'd rather stay here at the barn. So after a few weeks of that, I finally said, okay, Frank, I will go over there. His name was also Frank. I said, I'll go over there and talk to, to Bill Creasy, who was the head of the uh, department at the time. And uh, I said, I'll go talk to him if you'll leave me alone, okay? Just, I'll do it, and then you leave me alone. Never bring this up again. So I go over in my manure-stained boots and dirty jeans, and, and uh, I go talk to this wonderful man who I got to know later very well, and, and uh, he was with all the other networks, eventually, that I worked with. And <laughs> he said, what makes you think you're qualified for this job? I said, I'm not qualified for this kind of work. I'm not interested in this kind of work, and it's been nice meeting you, and I'm gone. And he laughed, and we sat there and visited for a little while, and I gave it no more thought. And about two weeks later, Frank Wright had to go do a race in California. And they called me up, and they said, look, Dave is going to have to do this show by himself, and we'd really like you to come. Would you come help us out? And I thought, well, I don't know. Why not? What, what the heck? And then I met Dave, who has become my lifelong friend, and he and Frank Wright both were my mentors and my guides. But Dave had to hold my hand and walk me through that first day, that first time on, on camera. And they handed me a microphone. They said, stand over here and look at the camera. I had no clue what I was doing. And that's how it all started, and it went from there. I had fun and, and made eternal friends of, of Dave Johnson and Frank Wright. Well, the chemistry on that show was so tremendous. You know, as a viewer, it seemed like it was three friends just hanging out. And uh, I guess well, that's that's the <laughs> that joke. was the case. And, and, and it came through. And totally then when you the were case. interviewing people as a, as a young trainer, when you were interviewing people, I would say to myself, boy, they actually know what they're talking about. They're one of us instead of, you know, the trip and knock on the triple crown type of coverage. But you guys were down to the nitty gritty and really help people learn about the game. Well, thank you. Thank you. That that 
is it, I've been told that, and it, it's a great compliment to me. I don't, you know, and, and obviously to Frank. Frank was a good horse trainer and a, a most articulate person. And Dave just had such great enthusiasm and presence on camera, and he knew the sport. And it, each one of us brought a little some different kind of element to it. And, of course, the two of them had been doing the show together for so long, and they very kindly folded me in, and it was fun. We had a really good time. And... Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed doing it. It was so easy and laid back, and it was right there at Belmont. I'd, you know, I'd work horses in the morning, and then I'd go get cleaned up and get dressed and go to the show in the afternoon. And, and you know, it was it was a gift. It was a gift from heaven. I got to do something I really loved, and and it became my work, just just like galloping horses was. I, I, I loved, loved, loved riding, and I got paid to do it. And you know, that's what they say: do what you love, and it's never a job. And you came from North Carolina as a kid, right? And what made you want to get involved with the horses to begin with? Were your horse crazy, or I was. I was kind of born that way, and I, you know, I was a, a, a kind of a caboose child uh, in North Carolina. My two sisters were much older, and they were kind of gone, and I sort of came along as a little surprise late, late in my parents' life. And I just, I don't know where it came from, but I, even as a little girl, I would cut cartoon pictures of horses out of comic books and scotch tape them to my walls. I don't know where it came from, but I was touched with it from the time I was born. And I got to start taking riding lessons one day a week at a little local riding academy uh, when I was about six or seven. I can remember the first time I sat on a horse. I can see him. His name was Velvet. I can see it as plain as day. And I just, it was like, it was an epiphany. I don't know if a six-year-old child can have an epiphany, but I did, and it, it set the course of my life. And it went from there, and uh, one thing led to another, and then I started doing a few little horse shows with a little backyard horse that I had that cost a couple of hundred dollars, and that led to knowing a lot of people up around Virginia would go to those horse shows up there. So when I went to college in Washington, I went out to see my friends in Virginia, and they were all galloping horses at the Middleburg Training Center, so I followed them to work one day, and I said, wait a minute, they're paying you to ride these horses? You get paid to do this? <laughs> and I said, where do I go to get a job? And I got a job breaking yearlings out at Middleburg, and, and that took me straight to the racetrack after I got through college, which I barely did because I was always cutting what glass to go study? gallop horses. So. Now, what were you uh, studying in college? What was your major in college? <laughs> I was an art history major. I was an art history major, and at least it gave me qualifications to appreciate all the wonderful equine art, art by Stubbs and so on. And uh, so there you are. Never put it to okay. much use. Yeah, I can it's tell you that. So, it was all about horses. No, no. All, you know, it's so funny because so many women that I know that have gotten into the heart and the horse business or are horse enthusiasts were art history majors. So I don't know. Really? It must be some some brain chemistry or something, right? <laughs> well, here's another one. So now you you started out with the WOR show and then moved to I guess CBS first and then ESPN. Uh, it was CBS first. Um, Frank Wright was Frank Wright and Jack Whitaker, who's also a lifetime friend. God love him. Um, were both doing the CBS broadcast. This was before they had linked the Derby, Preakness, and, and Belmont together into the Triple Crown that went as an entity to one network only. 
at the time ABC did the Derby, and then I think they did the Preakness too, and then CBS did the Belmont. So it kind of there was a lack of continuity. But Frank Wright and Jack Whitaker were doing those two, were doing all the CBS shows, most of which were only in New York. They did the Belmont, they did the Travers, they did some of the fall racing. So it was right there in my backyard because I was living there and working at Belmont at the time. And I kept thinking, oh, I'd love to do one of those network shows with, with Frank and Jack. Oh, that would be so great. And lo and behold, CBS finally invited me uh, a couple of years later to do the Travers at Saratoga. And it was the year that Jadski won it. Um, so I think it was like 76 or 7. I ha- I'd have to look it up. And uh, so I started doing the shows at CBS, and Bob Fishman, who still still is with CBS to this day, he does the Final Four basketball and everything. And he he um, and Frank and Jack and I all became great friends. Also, Mike Pearl was there at the time. He later was at ABC. So anyway, I was at CBS for, oh, I don't know, six or eight years, and then they packaged the Triple Crown and put it up for bid uh, to the networks, and ABC one out over CBS, and so when they started doing the Triple Crown as a unit in 1986, I wound up getting a contract from ABC to do that. In the meantime, I had started doing some of those ESPN shows, the Racing Across America, that I did with Dave Johnson, and those all went along simultaneously. I didn't go from one to the other. I did I did them side by side, the, the ABC shows and the ESPN shows. And, so there was kind of sometimes I would do two sets of shows in one afternoon. And when you were with ABC, then, you were working with probably one of the consummate guys in the industry, Jim McKay. Oh my gosh, yes, Jim McKay was there, and Jack Whitaker came over from CBS. And um, working with Jim was was just magic. I mean, as we all know, he's a legend, and his his gift with words were. It was just extraordinary, and he could paint a picture for the opening of the show, of the Derby or whatever race it was, and we would we would preview what he had done and 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 in the truck, you know, for rehearsal, and you would see it, and it never failed to make me cry. Here I go again talking about crying, but his words were so eloquent, and he, he captured so much because he loved the sport so much. He loved horses. He had a beautiful farm there in Maryland. And he raised horses, and he loved it. And his passion showed through in every word he ever spoke on camera at a racetrack. And you wound up in Maryland, am I correct? I did, yes, yes. When I decided I wanted to try my hand at training horses, which I'd always worked for someone else, and when Joe Canny and I were married all those years, and I watched him, and I watched Frank Frank uh, Whiteley, and I, I, you know, I I had so many opinions about what if it, if I were training, here's what I would do. And finally, I thought, well, let's just see what you can do. And so I was going. Um, I had to spend a fair amount of time in the spring at, at Pimlico anyway, because we would do the Preakness. We'd, I'd go a week ahead of time, then I'd do the Preakness, then I'd stick around. In those days, the Pimlico Special would come later. So I was living in South Carolina in Camden at the time. Um, where I first started galloping horses for Frank uh, Whiteley. And I was breaking yearlings and sending them off for other trainers to send them off to uh, to the track and get them ready to go to the track. And finally, I had uh, a handful of horses, and plus Frank Whiteley had given me an old, a horse that had been bowed that was a gelding of his, and I had them all there. And I thought the, the one particular owner who owned the two-year-old said, well, look, why don't you take them? You can train them. And I thought, okay, I'll do that. And it was Dr. Uh, 
Dr. Jay Arman, who now trains his own horses. You know who he is. I mean, he's won some pretty yes, big races. And he left. Uh, he and his wife left a couple of two-year-olds with me, so I took the, the little bowed horse and another little horse that I picked up for a few dollars. I took the four horses with me when I went to go do the Preakness. <laughs> I got stalls at Pimlico, and I took these horses up there. And, and um, a few weeks after the Pimlico Special was over, I was stabled right there at Pimlico, and I won my first race right there at Pimlico. And uh, with with the horse that had to be Jay exciting. Arms. Oh, it was a fabulous! It was fabulous, <laughs> and I, I, I'll never forget this. And Lord knows he's gone now, but one of one of the great horse trainers of all times and great characters of all times, Dickie Small, and he was of course stable there at Pimlico, and and I got the honor of getting doused with a bucket of water in the winner's circle by Dickie Small. So there you are, when I won my first race. There, there you are. And, and that would not surprise me from Dickie. <laughs> uh, he was <laughs> he a great was horse. So funny. He, you're right. You know, th- and those characters, you know, unfortunately, time passes on, and there's fewer and fewer of those type of guys around. But you, you probably experienced so many people like that. I did. I did. I mean, you know, <laughs> racing it was. And still is, I'm sure. Although I'm, I'm uh, quite an arm's length away from it now, and I don't, I don't know the new up and comers like I used to. But oh my gosh, when you think about like a Woody Stevens and a Charlie Whittingham, those—I mean, people were just amazingly clever and sharp and funny and and fearless, and, and they were just so fun to be around. And you know, Charlie would always threaten to butt heads with you, and. Woody would tell you about his five Belmonts and his gold watch, and you know, I mean, you, and their, their quotes and their lines live on to this day. But you know, I, I, I'm sure that there are great, and I love so many of the people, but they're much more buttoned down now, you know, and and uh, and the whole communication has changed now. They, the horses have websites, and trainers have have you know are, are doing a lot of things digitally when con- communicating with owners by. I don't even know what all I, you know, but no more phone calls. In my day, there used to be self uh, telephone booths at the racetrack that they put chains around during racing. They would lock up padlocks exactly. at the telephone booths. Telephones were not allowed in the stable area. Could you imagine Todd Pletcher trying to train his string or Wayne Lucas with no telephone in the stable area? I mean, come on. It was the dark ages then, I guess, but it, it seemed so much more colorful to me and, and just so much more character i don't know fun no i remember one day trying to get into the jocks room 15 minutes before the first post and literally being escorted by security down the steps and and so the world has changed drastically uh but at the end of the day the horses are still the horses and and you mentioned you're at arms length do you follow do, do you follow the game still or Oh, of course I do. I uh, and, for, and one of the things I didn't get much done with the packing boxes this past week watching Royal Ascot. I couldn't tear myself away from the TV, but I do. I, I try to read the Thoroughbred Daily News most every day. I don't always get that done, but in the height of the season, you know, the pre-Triple Crown, pre-Breeders' Cup, Saratoga, Keeneland, I pay pay a lot of attention. I keep track of my friends' horses that, that run and then horses that they bred and everything. But even the people who are directly involved, uh, I have a good friend who's a longtime breeder and owner, and she tells me, she said, I don't even know half these people. I mean, you know, it, it's just, it's changed so much. 
Um, but that's what happens. You know, everybody gets a little older and retires, or you know, and then their tra- their assistants come along, and then you learn the assistants, like when Todd Fletcher and 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 uh, all of Wayne Lucas's team. All of those guys were young right. assistants. Well, now they have their young assistants are now taking out licenses, so I've begun to lose track. It's a little like pedigree. You know, I used to know all the pedigrees, and the expression is, as the, 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 the bloodlines get further and further down the line, we say the pedigree goes off the page. And so a lot of times the pedigrees that I right. used to know are now off the page. And then, of course, when the Arabs came in, they named, you know, they named all their horses very unusual names in, in Arabic that I couldn't follow, so I lost that thread of pedigree <clears throat> but it's uh, you know nothing stays the same and everything moves on and I just like to remember the way it was when, when we were all there no, it's it's funny because we're in the same age bracket and you you start looking back at things and you say boy it was it was better or different or whatever but the great thing about it is that the game still continues forward you know, well, it back does. in the and 70s and 80s, forward, that, 80s, we were afraid that it wouldn't be. Well, you know, it was funny because um, one of the things, as I was telling you earlier, that I was looking back over some stuff, and the, my first year at Belmont Park when I went up there to, to stay for good was 1968. And that was the year Ford Pass got the Derby from Dancer's Image over what? Butazolidin. I mean, yep. what a what an introduction to racing that was for me. And then, and then Ford Pass comes along and wins the Preakness, and then everyone's in a dither about, well, if he wins the Belmont, what do we do? Is he really a Triple Crown? Of course, he didn't do it, as you remember. But I mean, think about that. Butazolidin took a Derby away. I mean, that's that's a lot of change, a lot of change. And it wasn't that many years later that it was legal. But boy, oh boy. So. Yeah, a lot of things have changed, um, and I keep well, thinking and, back about all this. In those days, you could race in Lasix in New York. Oh no, no, it, it came way later. I mean, when when did it? I mean, I'll never forget being so sure that Ali Sheba was going to win the Triple Crown. I was a avid, avid Ali Sheba fan because he stood on his head in the stretch at, at, at the Derby and and won anyway. I thought he was a pretty great horse, and I, I nobody could convince me that he wouldn't be able to win in New York um, without Lasix. And yet there was no Lasix in New York at the time, and he did not win. Um, and whether whether that's a direct result or not, I don't know. We saw many a horse that just comes up short in the, in the Belmont for various and assorted reasons. Um, and I certainly saw plenty of them in the very beginning. You're in my age bracket. I mean, remember Cannonero? Remember Spectacular yeah, exactly. Bid? I mean, the... That was a that was a real lesson. All those horses that really taught me a lot. Now, do, are you still around the horses at all? Do you ride or? I ride some when I can. Um, we, my husband and I, Doug Davidson, we've been living in Annapolis, and we got into boats. We both really always wanted to play with boats, so that takes up a lot of time. And we were mostly with sailboats, so. And then to get to where I could ride, I would go up to Moncton to uh, to Tommy Voss's. God bless Tommy Voss, who we, we've lost. Uh, but he is going into the Hall of Fame pretty soon, which is wonderful. Um, I would well go deserved. up there and ride a little bit, or I'd go over, over to Middleburg or over to Front Royal, Virginia, where Wayne and Susie Chatfield-Taylor have their farm, and we'd just go hacking through the woods. I did a little fox hunting for a while, but 
without doing a lot of writing all the time, it's not the smartest thing to do to just go out and go fox hunting one day when you're not dead fit. So, um, no, I don't ride much uh, anymore, and I do miss that. That's probably the one thing that's missing in my, my happy happy life. And, frankly, we've just recently moved to a place that does have a little riding nearby, so I'm going to be able to just go hacking in the trails, and that's all I want to do, because nothing will ever take the place back of all the again, thrills right? I had on the back of a horse. Uh, Charlie, it has been a pleasure having you on the show, and just listening to you it's just such a delight and uh, I want to <laughs> well, thank, thank you for you all that so you've much. done for the game oh thank you what the game did for me it's more like it and God bless the horse and, thank you for letting me reminisce that was really fun and it was great talking to you same here and hopefully you'll join us again on the show absolutely thank you your passion for horses into a career with a bachelor's degree in either biomedical sciences or business administration with a concentration in equestrian studies and do it at a private university with small classes led by experienced professors. Kaiser University's flagship campus features a beautiful campus situated in the heart of West Palm Beach that has suite style residence halls with 24-hour security, Wi-Fi, cable TV, and a marketplace for delicious meals. Competitive opportunities are available through our equestrian team, who is a proud member of the IHSA. Visit Kaiser University at www.kaiseruniversity.edu or call 561-478-5500 for more program information. Florida this winter and need a place to live in South Florida? Give Dunhill Real Estate a call. Great seasonal rentals, farms, and homes are available now. Give them a call at 954-655-8533 or visit www.homes100.com. That's homes100.com. Looking for a racehorse, yearling, weanling, or mare? Heath and Joseph Equine can find it for you. For more than 20 years, the Heath and Joseph team has represented buyers and sellers in the sales ring and in private transactions. They'll work hard for you to get you the very best at the very best price. Give them a call at 561-317-4500. Hey, Laura, wasn't that a great interview? Sure was. Charlie is such an amazing person, and she has one of the great voices of racing, and we're very fortunate to have two other great voices of racing, Carl and Kurt Becker, with us this afternoon. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank Good you. Yeah. You know, first of all, I have to tell you, over the years, as auction announcers, 
the two of you have probably taken more money out of my pocket than even my <laughs> wife has. <laughs> Good. We did Good. Thank you, pal. Well, I better go to work. <laughs> but it, it, it's really a, a pleasure to have you on, on the show. And we, we talked to a lot of people over the years, and I really have been bugging Kurt to get you on because you're very special. Uh, the the strength of your family connection is so so obvious in, in the 25 or 30 years that I've been involved in the business. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that and about Altamont and you know your relationship to the Effington County Fair and and how deeply the sport goes into the family. Uh, Kurt, I, I know you were the first guy to take the microphone at Keeneland at the races. And let's just talk about that to start with. How did that feel to be named the the, the first voice of Keeneland? Well, it, it was certainly an honor at the time, and I actually have told folks that uh, – my sense of appreciation for that has even grown, uh, despite the fact I've been there 23 years. I probably appreciate that more today than I did back in 1997. I, I, I probably because I was too nervous, just too uptight, trying too much to uh, uh, to focus on how properly to make the transition for a, a racetrack that had existed for 60 years with no public address and how to make that transition in a fashion that would be appropriate to Keeneland and that would be satisfactory to the public. But as the years go by, I more and more have learned uh, from firsthand experience what Keeneland's about, what the people of Lexington are about, and as a result, my sense of appreciation for being a, a member of the staff there has only increased. When I was doing the research for the show, Carl, I listened to so many of your race calls over the years. And then I started listening to Kurt, and you're similar but very different. Is it because you primarily have called standard bread races, or is it just a, a different style that the two of you have developed? Probably. I think, too, Kurt... Uh has adapted to the Keeneland way of life and uh, called the races there in a uh, more, shall we say, laid-back form, uh, whereas here at the fairs and and the Grand Circuit races I did at Indianapolis, Springfield, Decoin, and then the Red Mile, probably were a little more wide open, I would guess, uh, altered our style just a bit. Your, your call at the top of the lane over the years has sometimes got me off my chair. I got to tell you, it, you know, they're electrifying sometimes. Uh, and yet, when I've seen you at the at the auction, you're you're by the book, kind of. So, <laughs> which, which which is the real Carl Becker? Uh, maybe one you haven't even seen yet, huh? <laughs> uh, uh oh. <laughs> the auctions, of course, we're representing the customer of the sale company and doing all we can to enhance his product. And, uh, you know, have to observe pretty carefully as the auctioneer goes along. We aren't needed for most horses, but when, when a horse is pretty much under market, 
it's our job to try to embellish the situation and bring out a strong point that maybe has been missed by the buying public, or in some cases, just give them another 20 seconds to think about what they're doing, and quite often they come forward with another bid. So it's a different situation, and, you know, on a horse race, standard bird race, you've got two minutes to portray the action, whereas in an auction, you've got all day to uh, work it, so the enthusiasm may not seem to be as high a level at an auction, but it's actually, uh, in my case, it is, and I know Kurt puts his heart and soul into those auctions also. One of, one of the things that I've noticed over the years is how b- hard both of you folks work for the less expensive horse. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a testament to you as horsemen as well as auction guys. Uh, I've seen both of you get the last nickel out of a $5,000 horse. And, uh-huh. and I know that's hard work. It is, and the person that owns a $5,000 horse, to him or her, is just as important as the person selling the million-dollar horse. So having been quite often on that side, the cheaper side, I came to appreciate how important it is to an individual to get the maximum amount of his horse. Quite often, that's the difference between uh, bringing another horse back to the auction or being out of business. So I think that's driven both of us to to get the most we can to represent the consigner. Yeah, Kurt, I've noticed with you, you know, your enthusiasm and your your hard work is the same in book one as it is in book five. But that's got to be exhausting. We get that question on the auction crew at Keeneland because of the fact that, uh, you know, you will have close to 5,000 horses cataloged. You will probably have better than 3,000 actually go through the ring over the course of 10 or 12 days. And and sometimes uh, late in the sale, folks will stop the auctioneers and the announcers out in the corridor, and they'll say, you know, I, I bet you guys are ready for this to be done, or I'll bet you're ready to go home. And, and our answer is always, actually, no. We, we enjoy the challenge of what we do. And I, I think part of that is the fact that in book one, when you've got colts that are selling at Keeneland September for seven digits, those are colts that admittedly, in many cases, because of their confirmation and their pedigree, they're going to sell themselves uh, regardless, perhaps, of the level of input uh, or the amount of words from the announcer or even the auctioneer. But as you go deeper into the sale, I, I think as a racing fan, that's that's what serves a person well on the auction stand because if you're a fan of racing and a fan of the breeding game, you can look at the page and perhaps emphasize certain points to those in the audience to reinforce the notions they might have. If, if someone is sitting there in book five, for example, and if they have, say, bid 5000 and somebody comes back at six and you go back to the next guy, and he waves off at 7,000. If, if the announcer can come onto the microphone and give a quick second speech, it's, it's not necessarily that the announcer will tell the guy something he hadn't already thought of, but he can help reinforce notions that that, that bidder already had. It's no different than if you and I are having a conversation, and if I say, 
you know, I'm a San Francisco 49ers fan, but golly, I just think the Patriots are going to be unstoppable this year and are going to win the Super Bowl. You might say to me, now hang on a minute, Kurt. You know, the 49ers have X, Y, and Z going for them. I wouldn't concede that to the Patriots just yet. It's, it's similar there. If, if the announcer can help give an extra level of confidence to that bidder to where he or she will come back and bid one more time, hopefully we can do that in book five as well as we do in book one. Now, does the fact that you folks have bred quite a few horses and quite a few good ones, does that also give you kind of a feel for what the consigner is going through? Absolutely. You know, it's a goal of every breeder to breed the champion, and uh, we have done that occasionally, not nearly as often as I'd like. But, yeah, a real benefit is having been on both sides of this. When I say representing $5,000 horses, I mean as a consigner personally. So I know that ended very well, and, and uh, Kurt made a good point as to reestablish confidence in the bidder sometimes. Quite often, the bidder is relying on other people's judgment. I know uh, if you get a horse that is supposed to be the hot horse in the sale, the trainers are talking up a certain horse, everybody wants to bid on that horse and look at it. Well, they might not have known that it was such a great horse until they heard a certain trainer talk about looking at it and really liking it. So sometimes when we pause as as an announcer, the auctioneer will sometimes look to us when he or she, he knows that the horse isn't bringing enough. And then you embellish a certain point. Maybe it's a great Philly family, and uh, that was established early, but when you come back and say, you know, the five best performers from the dam are all Phillies, bingo, the, the bidder immediately connects and thinks, yeah, that's right. It is Maybe it is worth another bid. So those are the kind of things that, that uh, as announcers at sales, we need to pick up on. And, and uh, we've had a, enough, uh, shall we say, exposure on the seller side to know how, how important that is. Also, I noticed that there's kind of a similarity in, in the way that both of you approach those horses at, at that little break between the auctioneer and, and your second announcement. It brings to mind the fact that there's been a number of father-son or family groups of announcers and auctioneers over the years, like the Martins and the Swinborns and the Finneys. Do, do you guys talk about it at home or these kind of compare notes? Uh, probably not as much as one might think. Um, we're too busy talking politics at Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> and other family get-togethers. But but it's fun to to uh, visit with Kurt when he's working the thoroughbred sale when he's had a couple of high ones the session before as to who the underbidder was and what makes this yearling bring five million instead of five hundred thousand and so on. So yeah, we we exchange some thoughts, but not extensively. Now, do you guys spend a lot of time non-professionally? Because it seems like the Becker family is a pretty strong unit. We are, yeah. Uh, everyone in the family appreciates horses. Kurt and I are the only two that have taken it on as a profession. Uh, but I know Kurt's mother, when she can hear him at an auction, there's no point in asking her if she wants to go out to dinner. She wants to listen or watch Kurt. And the same is true of the races, the sales or the races. So 
yeah, she's she's hooked to that extent. Uh, haven't heard her say much about wanting to watch me. I don't know if there's a message there or not, but, uh, but I know that she, she never misses a chance to watch Kurt. Well, you know what? Neither do I, and my wife says to me often, come on, let's get up from the computer and do something, and I'm watching Kurt at, at Keeneland. So I can relate to your mom. Uh, and, Kurt, we, we, we see you all over the place. You're, you're still doing NASCAR, right? I still do uh, with Motor Racing Network for their radio coverage. And uh, I've been very fortunate over the years because I've had employers who are very accommodating and very understanding about the way the dates fall. So uh, each year, Motor Racing Network, they will sit down and review my Keeneland schedule with me, and they will plug me into their schedule as needed in and around uh, what I do at Keeneland. And by the same token, it's a two-way street. Uh, the folks at Keeneland have been very kind as well. I remember a couple of years ago during the November breeding stock sale at Keeneland, had an overlap with uh, Ford Championship Weekend in Miami, and the folks at Keeneland were uh, very accommodating to make arrangements so I could depart and uh, leave the sale a couple of days early and fulfill that commitment with Motor Racing Network. So uh, I know the I know that in, in America there's long been this perception that, uh, and I say this lightheartedly, you know, everybody hates the boss, so to speak, but. I, I have to say that in my experience, uh, the bosses have been extremely patient, and uh, that has allowed me to do what I've been able to do. Well, a lot of that probably is the talent that you have. But I have a question for you. Is there a reason that you've specialized in sports where you just go around in circles? <laughs> no, it, it's, uh, it, it all comes back to family influence. Uh, you know, one of the things that I enjoyed, and you mentioned it at the outset, in our hometown in central Illinois, we have the local county fair. And the Effingham County Fair, our family's got roots going back to, to when my dad showed livestock. He showed Yorkshire hogs at the fair when, when he was a kid in the 1950s. We've got pictures. Those are, those are fun memories, and it makes for a longstanding connection. And, you know, that was really how dad got interested in in the harness racing game, because when he would be showing livestock, he would, uh, when he had a break, he would walk up to the fence and he would watch the harness races. And that was really how he became familiar with the sport. And, and my, my first, uh, probably my earliest memories of going to the races, I can remember my mother parking the car. I was probably four years old. And uh, the first race was underway. And my mom held me up. There used to be an old wooden picket fence around the outside of our uh, county fair racetrack. And I remember her holding me up so I could see over it. And here came the horses down the stretch and the drivers are hooting and hollering and the sound of the pounding hooves. And I could hear my dad's voice on the public address. So uh, being able to grow up in a rural community here in, in the Midwest and experience those kinds of things really did end up having a big impact on, on where a guy wanted to go with his professional life. Well, when the Effington County Fair is in progress, I usually gain about four pounds vicariously looking at your Facebook posts. <laughs> yeah, see, the, the, the food assortment, for those that have never been to a county fair, uh, anything that you want uh, that is 
deep fried anything that is basted in cinnamon or powdered sugar, uh, all of the above, you can find it on the Midway at the at the county fair. <laughs> and we're fortunate enough that you you share every one of those things with us. And, and you know, and, and I enjoy that. Uh, one of the things I learned a number of years ago, uh, some of my colleagues that I have, you know, they they would tell me they they would say I had a colleague that had grown up in Brooklyn, and he used to tell me he he would ask he would say you know. So what what was it like growing up in a town of 2,000 people? And he was genuinely curious to learn about what back my background was like coming from the roots that I did. And I, I appreciated his interest. I appreciated the fact he was curious about that because he, he said, I just didn't – he said, I liked growing up in Brooklyn. He said, I'm just saying I, you know, I never got to experience what you did uh, as a child and such. So I – I enjoy putting those images out there on social media just in case anybody might be curious what what uh, the culture is like in this part of the country. You know, and we un- we understand your your appreciation for culture. Uh, matter of fact, today, my wife and I were looking up to see who Barney Fife's girlfriend was. Uh, and it was Thelma Lou. Uh, I had thought it was Mary Lou. My wife was right, as usual. Uh, but you know, I think it, what you do with that and Carl, what you do with your, the way that you announce and you, you keep the game kind of where it was. And that's a good thing. Uh, I, I think it's so important that people get, get a feel for the heritage of the sport. And so whether, whether it's an electrifying and a stretch call at a fair or Kurt, your, your calls, which I really appreciate because I can actually understand what you're saying, which sometimes these days it's hard to understand what an announcer is saying in the thoroughbred track. I, I appreciate that. And you guys have a wonderful feel for the heritage of our sports. Well, thank you. That's uh, quite a nice compliment. Uh, it's, it's not given lightheartedly because I really do believe in what what you do. Tell tell me about the farm right now. Do you have any horses running? We aren't racing anything. Uh we have uh about forty mares to foal starting in February and uh, we're getting ready for the breeding season, getting the stallions primed and prepped. Um I stand a couple of trotting stallions. One of them is Desjarm bro, you might remember him when he Yep. As a three-year-old, he he won a heat of the Kentucky fraternity and so on. The other trotting stallion is Cassis, who won a heat of the Hamiltonian. Had a bad go in the final, so it was. We won't talk about that. But anyway, we we enjoy the breeding business in Illinois. It's changing somewhat because of the governor signing the new racing bill. Got a couple of bumps in the road due to the fact that the new track has been put on hold. It was being Actually, under construction, the buildings were being taken down to build it, but the uh, gaming commission did a little more study on the, one of the principals involved and believed that because of an involvement years ago with a bank that was questionable regarding their ties to the underworld, he he has to reestablish himself before we go on. I know nothing about whether that's all true or not, but a story of the Chicago Tribune delayed construction on the new track. So... That's been a little bit of a setback, but uh, we have this thing in Illinois called Recapture, which holds harmless attracts to, a, I believe, a 
1988 level of income, uh, they are able to take out from the first account the amount equal to the difference between the income then and the income in the current year. That cost harness racing $2.9 million last year in purses. comes right out of the purse account. When the first slot machine goes into play at Hawthorne, which is was projected as September, but now it looks like it might be earlier, recapture goes away. So that automatically means... Oh, that's going to be huge. The, yeah, on the current business, nearly $3 million a year. So it's, it's positive. The state fairs both have some things that are going to happen that should enhance the purses there. We, you know, projector, we might see a quarter million dollar finals at, at Springfield. I doubt that it'll reach that level, but it will be much better than the 50 we're going for now. So as a result, the breeding picture now is changing. Uh, everything's going to, you know, improve, move up a notch or two, and we hope to be able to move up with it and be able to compete. Well, the racing there has always been good. The purses just haven't been that good. Years ago, I stood a a horse that raced in Illinois, and he was an Illinois bred in New Jersey called Courageous Legacy. And uh, he he would have been a great stallion for Illinois if there there was a breeding industry. And now that's changed, which is great to hear. See a sun fan? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that family. That was was good. Yeah. The... uh, you know, I hope we don't increase the number of stallions and mares uh, in excess of the potential. That's usually a problem. I know I think that Indiana right now, for example, is overpopulated. But the yearling sales for the average horse, the middle-of-the-road horse, were down this year. Top end was up, which is expected. They had $400,000 yearlings in Indiana this year. Uh, so... That's always a danger that you get too much enthusiasm, too many mares, you know, too many average horses when a program improves like this one is bound to. You know, it's it's always difficult when you look at the catalog page and you say, why'd they breed that horse? You know, and so I understand what you're saying. Guys, right. we are about to run out of time. I, I could visit with you for two days, let alone a half an hour, and I really appreciate you being on the show. Alora... These are two of the best voices and two of the best guys in the sport. Amazing. And th- thanks for being with us and have a Merry Christmas. And uh, Kurt, uh, keep those Winchester 73 quotes coming, kid. <laughs> Will do. And uh, Les, it's been great to, to be on with you. And we uh, we both appreciate the time to, to reminisce and, and talk about a sport that uh, has been very good to us. Great. And Indeed. enjoy your family. and. We'll hopefully speak to you soon. Good. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks. And, folks, that's uh, the end of this edition of the Equisport News with Laura Allen. Thank you. Uh, This is Les Salzman. We'll see you next week.